Can you imagine what it feels like to be a Canadian soccer player as Peter Fanagas blows the whistle? It's official. Canada 2000 Gold Cup champions. How does that sound? You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Neff. Yes, it's episode nine of the Northern Football Podcast. I'm Peter Galindo, joined by my favorite Chilean Canadian, Thomas Neff. Thomas, how's it going, man? Good, good. I didn't know you you knew other Chilean Canadians. <laughs> I, I probably know one other Chilean Canadian, and that's because, ironically, one of my dad's business partners is also Chilean Canadian. So I guess him and I have that similarity, I suppose, that we both uh, work with Chilean Canadians. Look at that. Peruvians and Chileans getting along, right? I know, I know. The, the world of unlikeliness. Exactly, exactly. But, I mean, we were talking off the air, Thomas. Busy show. We'll start in MLS because a lot happened there. And when we look at Toronto FC's 2-2 draw with the Vancouver Whitecaps, there were many takeaways, of course. But I want to start with how that match sort of ended. And I'm not talking about the late flurry of chances. I'm talking specifically about that Jonathan Osorio goal, just the manner in which it happened. Is that one of the most hilarious goals you've ever seen live that you can think of? It has to be. I mean, it just bounced right in front of him. You know, he didn't really know what to do. It's just, okay, it's, yeah, I guess it's, that's it. We, we did ask Thomas, our, our listeners, if they've seen any funnier goals, and we got a couple of submissions. Um, for me, myself, I recall there was a goal scored. I can't remember who the specific player was, but it was a player for Sunderland, and it was a match against Liverpool. And they scored a goal that ricocheted off a beach ball that was thrown onto the pitch by the crowd, and it went in. I mean, first of all, the surprise factor is obviously off the charts. And then just the fact that it was a beach ball thrown onto the field, like everything about it was amazing. Our listeners submitted a couple. David Anthony on Twitter mentioning Carlton Cole literally somersaulting a goal for Celtic against Inverness a few years back. And Tracy James Clark highlighted Charlton Athletics opener, a shout-out Liam Miller, versus Plymouth, which was somewhat similar. But why don't we get into some more serious content here? When we look at this game from a Toronto perspective, in my eyes, they were quite fortunate to draw this game. Do you see it the same way? Well, uh, they asked this question to um, Marco Santos. Does it feel like a point earned or two points lost? He didn't really quite have an answer. Now, on Toronto FC's perspective, I mean, look, they finished really, really high in the table last year. Two games, uh, one point. Um, You sort of have to be disappointed by this team. Um, Yes, obviously, considering just how many uh, players are still missing from this uh, roster. Obviously, they'll have some players back for Tuesday's game against Cruz Azul. But the reality is you're now playing with much less depth you're talking about kind of picking from guys that normally wouldn't get time. I mean, we were talking about just the young crop of players that are now finally getting a chance, Luke Singh being one of them. But the way this game unfolded, it felt like Toronto FC just were the favorites and Vancouver sort of not didn't pull the, the rug under them, but in a way... Could it have been this close or did one team sort of dominate the whole game and then the other one just got a lucky bounce or two? Yeah, and that is the question for me. Like, 
if you just look at the chances Toronto created, really their best chances came off of fortuitous bounces, right? Like they didn't really create much else of note, even after they threw Altidore on and Osorio on and Schaffelberg on. This is now the issue for them when you have this thin of a squad, because it's one thing to do it for one or two games in a row. Once you get to the third, fourth, fifth game, as we're now going to see in midweek against Cruz Azul, and we'll talk more about that game in a bit with our guest Salvador Pérez, the issue with that is guys get tired, right? Because you're going from not playing months at a time to you're now playing every three, four days with the same 14, 15 guys. Now, it's great that they have Altidore back and Osorio and everybody else like them in that regard, but when you're relying on Noble Akello playing in a different role than he's used to, when you're relying on Luke Singh, who's still very, very raw, like even though he looked better compared to the Montreal game, still his issues defending in isolation when he was pressed in possession, had some issues there, and that's going to correct itself maybe with more games and more repetition at, at a high level. But, you know, you said it, this is the problem, right? And you, you just wonder if, if, if at least for the first six weeks to two months of the year, if they're going to suffer. And I wanted to ask you this, actually, now that I bring this up, do you feel like Chris Armas's methods are hindering this team's fitness? Because when you look at it, having this amount of injuries this quickly, and we saw Ralph Prizo was held out because of a precautionary injury, it seems like this playing this style in this heat just does a number on guys' muscles. Do you think that has anything to do with it? I couldn't tell you. I think it could be a, a mix of a coincidence and also the coach's style. I mean, you and I both follow uh, and cover the South American game. I remember hearing from a source uh, in France, I think it was L'Equipe, um, they said that Jorge Sampaoli's techniques at uh, Marseille uh, made the players extremely tired <laughs> after only two practices, because he would extend the practices, and, in, and not only would he extend the practices, but in that extended time, he would demand his players to push even harder, even if they were, let's say, on a Wednesday and the game would be on Friday or Saturday, like there would be two or three games away. But again, none of these things are public knowledge. Um, I'm not a I'm not a journalist who likes to speculate, but it would be interesting to know because at the end of the day, every single head coach has their own style, their own identity. What I can say is just how unfortunate they've been to lose all these players at once. Um, you can have players that are, you have two or three missing in different stretches of the season, and it sort of alternates in a way. But to have all these guys just not available for you in the in the very beginning all at once is is extremely unfortunate. Yeah, I, I would suppose. If you look at Vancouver's game, look, even though I said, from my point of view, Toronto was probably fortunate to get a draw, Vancouver, to me at least, wasn't like completely dominant for all 90 minutes and they were creating you know a ton of chances and this and that like they still looked ordinary at times themselves and were quite sloppy at times themselves and unlike Toronto they have the vast majority of their 11 available to them save for one center back um, and then Caio Alessandro who made his debut and Bruno Gaspar who also made his debut so when you look at how they performed and once again it was set pieces that made the difference um what did you make of their performance as a whole? It, it looked like some guys, now that they had that game under their belts and they kept the same 11 in the same system, they looked a little more in sync with each other and you saw that play out. But 
what did you make of how they played overall? Well, what you see is uh, Vancouver had a much deeper bench than they did in the first game, obviously against Portland. Uh, they were quite thin there. I'm surprised as to why Alexandre and Bruno Gaspar weren't in the 11. Yes, I know it's their first MLS start, but I mean, Alexandre is playing in Botafogo and the Brasileirao, and Bruno Gaspar um, has Olympiacos and, and Sporting Lisbon experience. I mean, why wouldn't you want uh, these guys in the starting line? But I can also understand how he wanted these guys to get their feet wet. Um, as far as individual performances go, it has to go without saying. Christian Gutierrez is an absolute gem. Yes. Um, he's playing incredibly well. Uh, in fact, he keeps just turning heads. And only turning heads, but I'm sure that his, considering he's still a very young player, um, his stock will not only rise, but um, let's not forget, he still has that South American flair. Y yes, he has a Canadian flag beside his name, of course. But he doesn't play like a Canadian. <laughs> True, yeah. I mean, I mean, first of all, Gutierrez has been terrific yet again. Um, as, as you pointed out, he's picked up where he's left off. That begs the question, does Aliandan get straight into the 11 right away? I say no, because you have to reward the guy. If a young player does well in those spots, until there becomes fixture congestion, I feel he does deserve to keep his place for the time being. Um, and while we're on the subject now, Canadians-wise, when we look at the players that were involved, you mentioned Guti there. Who else stood out to you? On this game specifically, well, I'll start with the Whitecaps since we were just talking about them. I'm surprised why Derek Cornelius wasn't in the 11. Um, that really kind of threw me off when, when I saw the, the starting lineup sheet. If he becomes a more rotational player, I can understand why. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't really help his chances if, if he wants to be part of the, of the, of the qualifiers and, and the Gold Cup squad. It seems like the Santos is really trusting Baldissimo. I don't know, Russell Tiber. I know I've been high on him before. Um, didn't have a great game, and, and I don't understand why he's being played out of position. On the TFC side, as I said before, just Luke Singh. Man, the guy got called out to Trinidad and Tobago. Um, similar situation to Dane Sinclair. Obviously, Dane Sinclair never has represented Trinidad and Tobago. Um, but Luke Singh um, has in the youth level. and two games in the MLS, both starts, 180 minutes, and he also played against Lyon and impressed in the Conca champions against the Mexican champions. And this guy could be... <laughs> this guy's so young, and at the end of the day, his potential is just so high that Toronto FC fans and Canadian soccer fans as a whole um, just have so much to be excited about with this guy that the sky's the limit. I mean... I wouldn't be surprised if in a year, in a two or three year period, it becomes known to, to European scouts that he could be on, on someone's radar. Obviously, Jaden Nelson, extremely young player, um, continues to, you know, have some, some downfalls and as every player, as every young player, ups and downs. Um, but as far as that, I mean, Larea has continues to be consistent. I'm, I'm very happy to see Akinola. Of course, Akinola, Currently represents the United States, um, but he has considered uh, a move to switch to Canada. One thing about Luke Singh before we move over to uh, TFC getting some reinforcements, more on that in a bit. Look, he still has time on his side. He is still very young. He is 20 years old. You know, he is getting minutes at a higher level than he's ever gotten before. But I do want to warn people. 
before they get too excited. And I'm not just talking about you, Thomas, specifically, because look, any any depth that Canada can get at center back, especially when they're playing in MLS, they're going to take it, no doubt about it. But it seems like every single young player that comes through Toronto FC, specifically Canadian young player, it's like two, three games, boom. He's a, like, we need to, to get him into the spotlight. He has to be on the national team. Like this has happened with Raheem Edwards. It happened with Schaffelberg when he first came through. You have to be patient a little bit. It's worth monitoring players like that, specifically a player of his type, because he looks comfortable on the ball. He looks like he's, you know, like I said, very calm in those situations. But like I said, there were moments where he was pressed and he, you know, he had some very bad turnovers. He's, you know, defending one-on-one, especially in transition. He looks quite uncertain and almost like, you know, do I push up? against the player and kind of close down the angle or do I let him have the shot? Like he just, these little things have not really happened yet. And to me, they're very basic, very basic traits every center back should have, no matter how inexperienced or experienced you are. Maybe he's a late bloomer, we'll see. But to me, there's still a lot for him to improve in. And that's why he is still so raw. He jumped the line. I mean, Julian Dunn, who was on a first team contract before, even he didn't get this good of an opportunity. If it wasn't for TFC's injuries, Luke Singh would have never been uh, would have never been in this opportunity to play in a short-term contract after being signed uh, to a 10 10-day deal. And and Julian Dunn was on a first-team contract, uh, same position. Um, so he's sort of been, as you said before, he's been thrown into the spotlight so quickly, and not just Raheem Edwards, but you know, and also a uh, Montreal Impact player, but Anthony Jackson Hamel, he had one good season in the MLS and he disappeared completely. Um, so at the end of the day, yes, it's exciting, but it's a long career, man. And um, football can change so much in a, in a span of a couple of years, in a, in a span of a couple of months. Um, so like you said, let's not get too excited. But at the same time, let's not forget he is a dual national. Jefferson Soteldo, uh, as we saw, Thomas, confirmed today by TFC, but the transfer has been reported for a few days now. Um, Six and a half million dollar fee for 75% of his rights. Uh, His former club, Huachipato, are entitled to a cut of the future fee as well as Santos. But when you look at Soteldo and how he fits in, um, clearly he's addressing a need on the wing right now. You and I have both watched him very closely over the last couple of years. Obviously, he played for uh, Lau and Huachipato in your native Chile, and then obviously moved on to Santos and has played for Venezuela many times now. What do you think he's going to add to TFC? I feel like Toronto FC got lucky in a sense. And what what I mean by lucky, um, they did all the due diligence. I give them 100% credit. But what I mean by luck is that Santos were in a ban by FIFA because they own they own money uh, to Wachipato. so 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 this has actually worked in Santos' favor, because now that ban is gone. Uh, Santos can now hire new players, can sign new players, and they no longer have that depth that they had with Wachipato anymore. So so in a way, Tronovsi sort of picked the right moment and the right player to go after, and um, he has been part of the the Copa Libertadores uh, best eleven. Just in terms of everything, uh, as far as uh, references, stats, uh, the way he plays, like they really, really did a a complete scouting report on this guy. And and again, will he be a goal scorer? I mean, he is a winger, 
Um, he's not a he's not a number nine as what they were looking for um, when they were searching for uh, Rafael Santos Borre of River Plate. But if I compare Borre and Soteldo, um, I think um, you couldn't have gotten a better guy. Maybe there was a couple more number nines that that were in the market, but Soteldo, in, in my opinion, he's one of the best in South America in his position. For sure he is, and, it, and it's a coup for Toronto to get him. I personally believe that if he wasn't as short as he, as he was, he'd be in Europe by now. Um, he's that good, but you know, because he's Venezuelan and because he's five foot three or four, however tall he is, um, I feel that leaves him at a disadvantage in that regard, but Toronto won't care at all. Um, and I, I think tactically he's going to fit in seamlessly. I mean, imagine when Botsuelo is fit, you got Sotelo on the pitch, you got Altidore up front or whoever ends up playing up front. Those three are going to be very, very good together. Sotelo is, and also just for the entertainment factor alone, like Sotelo being as dynamic as he is, he's going to excite a lot of fans just with how tricky and shifty he is when he dribbles. I mean, he likes to cut inside and dictate games there, but I think what's really good about the signing specifically is he's very um, fluid in terms of his positioning because he can play on the left or the right, typically plays on the left, of course. Um, he can play as an inverted winger, but he has played as a more traditional, quote-unquote, uh, winger for Venezuela where he just kind of hugs the touchline and doesn't really drift inside that much. Uh, and he's two-footed, so he's comfortable on the left or the right equally, which is good. And because of that, and when you saw how Pozzuolo and Paolo Piatti connected last year on that right-hand side, it wouldn't surprise me too much if Sotelo plays on the right, but, I mean, I would imagine he slots in on the left and, and they just figure it out from there because the way, you know, TFC has played in terms of their shape, it's been quite fluid so far. But, yeah, very exciting signing for sure for TFC, and we'll see how he does once he makes his debut and whatnot, but a very exciting signing for sure. And he's a very young player, and I think the fact that you have Jonathan Astora, you have Alejandro Pozuelo, and you have what he now likes to be called Mark Delgado, Spanish, uh, I think uh, you're a new player, you're young still, uh, moving to a new city, new country, new culture, I think the Spanish factor will, will help him. And let's not forget, one of the reasons why Santos Borre didn't want to come to the MLS, didn't want to come to Toronto FC, was the national team. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he looked at Colombia's call-ups and he saw, well, um, there aren't any players in the MLS, Colombian MLS players that are being called up to to the national team. Um, it's either I stay here in Argentina, go to Brazil, or go to Europe. Um, that's not the case with Soteldo. You know, you see a guy like Joseph Martinez scoring 30 goals a year, and I'm, I'm sure he I'm sure he used that as as a reference point as well. Oh, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. All right, well, we'll move over to their CONCACAF Champions League action this week. It resumes with the quarterfinals, with TFC taking part, of course. They face Cruz Azul, who are killing it in Liga MX right now, Thomas. Yes, they sure are. And joining us on the line, we have Salvador Perez. He's a writer for Goal Mexico and covers LA Galaxy. Salvador, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Thomas, Peter. Uh... Thanks for the invite. And yeah, I cover usually LA Galaxy, LAFC, and also the teams of the Mexican League, uh, America, uh, Chivas, Atlas, and also Crossul, uh, the team that will face uh, Toronto FC on the on the first leg of the quarterfinals of the CONCACAF Champions League. So obviously Crossul are at the top of the league. 
in Liga MX? What's led to their surge uh, in the Clausura this season? Yeah, 14, 14 matches without a loss. So that's an important that's an important record for the match. Um, the match against Toronto FC won't be easy for Clausura. Uh, why? Because Toronto FC leave out a team like Leon that is the reigning champion on Mexican League. So that's going to be an interesting match. Um, Salvador, some who cover Liga MX and Cruz Azul specifically say Cruz Azul have had luck on their side this season regarding opponents finishing and situations like that. Do, do you agree that they've been maybe a bit lucky or have they fully deserved being top of the table right now? It, it fully deserved. It fully deserved. Why? Because Crossul is in the process. Crossul is in the process. Uh, the, the making of the team came uh, since three or four seasons with, that, with, uh, with the management of, uh, of a coach like Pedro Cachinha, a coach like Robert Dance Foley. So that's the manage that Crossul had. So it deserved the, the, the record that Crossul has. And it's important on the road for what do Crossul win? What do Crossul win? Crossul wins uh, the title on Mexican League. They don't. They don't won a title on Mexican League since 1997. So it deserved it. It deserved it, uh, the record and all the games that Crossul have won. But it's a different. It's a different. It's a different story on the on the Concacaf Champions League. It's a it's a regional. It's a regional competition. So that's going to be important. That's going to be important. And that's going to be an important parameter for Cruzul. How do they face? How do they face the Concacaf Champions League on the road for the title, the Mexican League? Um, what improvements have uh, uh, head coach Juan Reynoso? Uh, uh, Juan Reynoso, as a player on Crasul, uh, was part of that team that won the title on 1997. He was part of that team that, as a player, as players won the title in 1997. So that 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 uh, that line, that line that follows Juan Reynoso. In its first season, in its first season as uh, the Crossul head coach, it's going to be important because he he gives confidence. He he gives confidence to the team. I I, I spoke with other uh, Crossul players and they they mentioned me. They they tell me that uh, the ideas that Cross, that Juan Reynoso has to to nullify. All the goals that Crossul has, that Crossul has, all the goals that Crossul has, uh, with with without that title, uh, he leaves out all that goals. Um, Salvador, who is your player or players to watch for these games from Cruz Azul's perspective? In for Crossul's perspective, uh, I don't I don't know. We are we are trying to find out which players are going to travel to Florida to Tampa Bay. Uh, we are we are looking we are looking out which players are going to travel to to that match against Toronto FC. But players, uh, I think 
um, I don't know, Santiago Jimenez as a forward. He has goals. He's a good player. He's son of Christian Chaco Jimenez, an icon of Crossul. <laughs> He's now the, the head coach of a team like Cancun FC on the second division, <laughs> on the expansion league in Mexico. Um, I think uh, Orbelin Pineda, he's a good midfielder. He's uh, an aggressive midfielder. I think maybe Sebastián Jurado. He was the goalkeeper on the CONCACAF qualifying tournament for the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games. So that can be three players. Those can be three players to watch on this match against Toronto FC. Um, obviously, the club has been has been good at home in the Azteca um, with a really a, a great record. Um, why has that been? Yeah, yeah, Cruzul has a has a good record on the Azteca, but I think it's gonna be it's gonna be different. It's gonna be different uh, against Toronto FC. Uh, <laughs> the the match against Arcachai FC, Cruzul. <laughs> Uh, 0-5 since the first minute and one eight not so it's gonna be important it's gonna be important to play on the on the side of Teca, but also it's gonna be difficult it's gonna be tough to play at, at Tampa Bay against Toronto FC so the record in the in the Azteca, it's important but it's gonna be another another story at Tampa Bay Salvador, do you expect, um, and, and I understand depending on who's available and the game situation, this can change. How do you expect Cruz Azul to approach this first game knowing that Toronto FC tends to press high and, and try to pressure opponents when they try to build from the back and the like? Juan Reynoso, Juan Reynoso has the idea to pressure uh, all the teams that Cruzul face. Juan Reynoso has that idea to pressure all the teams. But what do I expect? I expect an aggressive team. I expect a team that makes pressure to other teams. I expect a team, a team that makes goals since the first minute. And I expect a good offensive. I expect a good offensive. Uh, we don't. We don't. We need to look uh, at the at the defensive zone. At the defensive zone, Crossul. Crossul may may play with a with a four with a four three uh, four three one one four three one two. Crossul may play like that. So that's what I expect. I expect an an aggressive team, an aggressive team, an offensive team, a team that looks for the goal since the first minute. So that's what I expect about Croatia. Obviously, Liga MX clubs have had a lot of success against MLS teams in the last couple of years. That's that started to change. Asking you specifically, what do you think are Cruz Azul's chances um, to advance in a further competition? And you mentioned it there, considering that in Tampa Bay. They're gonna be playing in a in a, in a non-neutral venue. It's gonna be it's gonna be tough. It's gonna be tough. It's gonna be tough for Cruzul. But um, they are going to travel. They are going to be on Tampa Bay uh, to two days uh, two days uh, before the match against Toronto FC. So Cruzul wants to adapt. Wants to adapt 
uh, on 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 Tampa Bay Cruz who wants to adapt on Tampa Bay. So it's gonna be it's gonna be important. What do they show? What do they show on the third match? What do they show against Toronto FC? So um, it's gonna be a tough match for Cruz. Now the three of us are aware of this term. Maybe the listeners are not, but um, there is a term in Mexican football known as Cruz Azulear to do. <laughs> uh, now Toronto FC, they're dealing with injuries, but we saw what they did to Leon in the last round. What does Cruz Azul have to do to avoid uh, Cruz Azulear to do a Cruz Azul? <laughs> I'm laughing because because uh, the term of cross there all people all people want to want to put that term on the on the dictionary. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I I want I want to see. I'm expecting uh, as I as I mentioned as I mentioned recently. I expect him that looks that looks. Uh, for the goal, a team that can be aggressive and that can be that can be the key that can be the key for this uh, Concacaf Champions League for this leg against Grasso. That's that can be that can be the key. And Grasso is ambitious. It's ambitious for this title. It's ambitious for a title in the Concacaf Champions League. As um, what I mentioned, what I mentioned. Cruz Azul um, can can get a good parameter, can get a good parameter on this Concacaf Champions League. For that, what do they want on the on the Mexican League? It, it won't be it won't be easy facing Toronto FC uh, because Toronto FC le- left out a team like Leon, so it won't be it won't be easy. But I expect an aggressive team that that can go for this title. Um, do you expect them to relax, um, considering obviously they drew a nil-nil against uh, Arcad of Haiti, and then at home they won eight nothing. I mean, it's a team that's essentially um, coming in with a lot of momentum. It's gonna be, it's gonna be tough. It's gonna be tough. It's gonna be a tough match, and Crossul needs to go as in as what I what I what we say in Mexico. Crossul needs to go for all the for all the canicas, <laughs> for all the canicas, and Crossul. Um, it's gonna be an, a good match against Toronto FC. Well, uh, thank you so much, Salvador, uh, for joining us. Uh, Obviously, it's going to be an interesting match, but we'll definitely watch out what happens. Yeah, we need, we need, we need to see. We need to see. We want to see uh, how Russell faces the match, <laughs> and and Russell don't don't want to cross Azulian. <laughs> don't want to cross Azulian in this in this tournament. In this tournament. <laughs> uh, yeah, they need to they need to win against Toronto FC, but it won't be an easy match. We'll move over to Nashville and Montreal Impact. They drew two to two. A wild game this one was, uh, kind of the similar-ish to the TFC Vancouver game. Um, Montreal, they were up two nil at a certain point, but ended up having to settle for a draw after Nashville came back from two nil down. When you look at the complexion of the game, Nashville did dominate for the most part. Um, I mean, Clement Diop came up big so many times for Montreal. Like this could have been a loss if it wasn't for him. 
But Nashville really got the better of Montreal from my perspective in the air. And that's how they really found their way back into the game. So with all this in mind, Thomas, should Montreal be happy with the point? Yes, yes. I mean, at the end of the day, you said it there, uh, Nashville were way more dominant uh, than Montreal. Uh, and they have to and they have, uh, they have to thank uh, Sack Brogelard for that. He has made MLS Team of the Week two times in a row, and he scored a golazo in the 2-2 draw. If he keeps his quality up, I don't see how you keep him out of the national team picture. Well, why don't we get into that talk a little bit, because it was almost a theme of the game, I feel, because you had two Canadian right-backs facing each other uh, in the match. Alistair Johnston, uh, he was actually involved in that second goal for Nashville with the second assist, um, and had a solid game overall, I thought. What a perfect thing for John Herman, eh? Just watch one game, two players exactly. in the same position. Fantastic. Doesn't have to watch two games. Yeah, exactly. But, Thomas, you and I were on the post-match uh, availabilities after the Cayman Islands game, and Alistair Johnston came on and spoke to us. By the way, very nice young man he is. He specifically said, and like he wasn't prompted in a question to say this or, or what have you, but um, when he was comparing himself with Richie Larea, he pretty much said, look, I know what my game is. I'm not going to be like Richie and take on a bunch of defenders. I'm not going to dribble past guys or, you know, essentially be that guy who almost acts as like a goal-scoring fullback, right? He, he's going to be solid defensively. He's going to really let the ball do the work when it comes to the distribution um, and go from there. But seemingly, it's almost like he took his own advice and has looked a lot better going forward this year so far. Uh, he's averaging more passes into the box. He's averaging more passes into the final third. Now, it's a very small sample size, and he did play against you know a pretty poor Cincinnati side and then Montreal, who's obviously made a bunch of changes. But if he can improve that area of his game and show this over an entire season, do you feel he could push... Lorea, or is it more a case of Lorea starts in some situations if we want a bit more attacking vigor from a right back, and then Johnston comes in if we want to be a bit more solid? Like, is it still very much an established number one and number two? No, no, it, it's not established number one, number two order. Um, I think Lorea has solidified himself more as the number one. But as far as pushing Rich Larea, I think he's being pushed out of the team. I don't know how you see it. I mean, Sackball Gillard, um, it's hard to argue two MLS Team of the Week appearances. And then you have Juan Cordova, who played 90 minutes, man of the match against Argentinian giant San Lorenzo in, in the group stage of the Copa Sudamericana. Um, there's some real competition for the number two spots. But as far as the number one spot, I think Larea has the edge. And if you're John Herman, you're not going to switch two center back. If you're John Herdman, you're not going to switch two right backs because what you do want is you want to have continuity. Um, the same, maybe not the same 23 players. It'll never be the same 23 players. Right. I'll say that. But you'll, you'll always keep around the same 15, 16, 17, 18 kind of players um, because over the one year and a half, two years of the cycle, you do want to build a lot of chemistry and you don't want to be switching around players yeah. all the time. But what I will say is that you have now three players playing consistently game in, game out in the MLS um, in the right back position. Uh, and it's promising. It's very, very promising. It's definitely promising. And I agree with you. I, I think you have to prioritize continuity 100%. And Lorea, to me, is the more 
complete, quote-unquote, of the four between Gordova, Brogiar, Larea, and Johnston. And he can offer you a bunch of different attributes, which is ideal. If Johnston adds some more uh, attacking influence in his game, and he's able to, you know, log those deep progressions and, and you know, be a solid distributor of the ball, that helps him. But, I, I mean, look, as long as Larea's playing and he's in form and he's the guy that Herdman goes with, that's the number one. I completely agree with you. Um, as we look at the broader scope from this game in terms of a Canadian perspective, Thomas, um, which of the other Canadians uh, caught your eye besides Brogiar and Johnston? Well, Kamal Miller continues to be a regular. Um, Ask Samuel Piet. Um, no Joel Waterman. Um, interesting decision by Wilfred Nancy. Um, although I, I did rate uh, Miller more than Waterman. As, as far as um, the other Canadians go, I just don't see James Pantamus getting a lot of seeing a lot of the field this year, and and same goes with uh, Basong and Ambayiha. I mean, like I said last week, it's good for Miller's stock that he's playing regularly, whether that's in a back three or a back four. Obviously, in this case, it is a back three. He's... What I want to know, Peter, I don't know if you want to know the same thing, but what I want to know if Montreal switched to a back two. Um, well, to a, to a back four, excuse uh -huh. me, uh -huh. and only plays two center backs. Mm -hmm. Does Kamal Miller stay in the lineup? Because Rudy Camacho and, and the Slovenian student, he's rated very highly by Wolf Nancy. Look, he's one of the only, outside of Lewis Binks, he's one of the only left footers in that team. Again, he offers you a little bit of everything, right? Because he, he can give you the passing from the back. He, can, he is a solid enough defender, reads the game pretty well. Um, aerially is where his one weakness is. And we saw this in the Nashville game. Um, and look, he wasn't the only one who was struggling. Everybody on Montreal defensively was struggling in the air, but that's an area he needs to grasp, grasp quickly as a center back is just fixing himself in those aerial duels, because otherwise that's going to be an area where Canada can be exploited if he plays. Um, but if they were to go to a back four Montreal, I still say he should be favored just because he's the more complete of the, of the bunch. And then from there, it's basically a case of take your pick. I don't know if putting him next to Rudy Camacho in a back four would be the wisest because he tends to be pretty rambunctious and he's slow. Um, Struna's not fast, very fast either, but I mean, at least he's a bit more of like your solid meat and potatoes defender, really, at least from what I've seen of him in Houston and now in Montreal. Let's move over to Canadians abroad, and we are debuting a new weekly segment we wanted the listeners to be more involved, so we threw out some feelers for uh, which Canadians abroad you want us to talk about, and we will be doing this every week, kind of like what I do with my articles, but obviously in audio form this time. So we got a few submissions. Uh, we'll start first with what Ken MNT Opinions asked us on Twitter. Will Lille have to sell Jonathan David due to their financial issues, Thomas? And we did talk about this a couple weeks ago, but... Uh, have you changed your stance since then? No, I haven't. Um, I don't think Lil will sell. Um, if you're Lil, you either want to sell him for the same amount of money that you bought him from uh, in Ghent, and that's around the 35 million euros with his contributions being on the field. I mean, they recently sold their goalkeeper um, to Milan for 15 million. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the day, financial troubles, I think they'll be fine. Yeah, correct. And like I said, they're in Champions League. They're probably going to make a couple more sales, whether that's Sven Botman, Zeki Celik. And the fact that Ghent is owed a sell-on on top of that transfer 
they're going to have to sell them for 40 to 45 million euros just to break even. And I just don't think that that would be a smart thing to do. If they are throwing them out there in the market, then you'll see just how bad their financial issues are. But I just don't think it's gotten to that level yet. Uh, and David, by the way, scoring in his first start uh, in his return from injury against Lyon in that massive win for Lille. Um, that brings him now up to 11 goals this season. The next question we have uh, is from Can MNT Universe, who wanted us to discuss uh, Stefano Stacchio, Theo Corvianu, and Liam Miller. Seeing as how we have discussed Eustachio before, you can listen to past episodes, and I've also written a couple articles recently, um, and we've pretty much given our opinions on him right now, and until something changes, that's not going to change. But on Corvianu, first off, Thomas, look, he's not been getting any minutes off the bench for Wolves. He's been in there quite a few times this season. I know he's 18 years old and he's still very young, but given Wolves' attacking struggles, is it a surprise to you that he hasn't yet made his Premier League debut? I wouldn't push the panic button. Um, he's still very, very young. And again, he could play a year or two more years in the E23 Premier League um, before essentially being loaned out to a League One or even Championship side. So I wouldn't push the the button. Although it is known that obviously Wolves don't have as much depth as maybe a top six club does. But again, I just think that the jump from academy to the Premier League is just way too too big. Oh, of course, yeah. It, it's just more a case of what do you have to lose at this point if you're Wolves? Like they're not going to get relegated. There are a lot of underachieving forwards in that group right now. Like, I just don't really see a reason not to give Corbiano a run of 15, 20 minutes just to kind of reward him and say, hey, listen, you've done well with the developmental side. Um, you know, you've gotten capped for Canada. You're riding high right now. Here's 15, 20 minutes. Just see what you can do. And if he doesn't do well or if he isn't, you know, maybe up to it, then you know, right? At the very least, it, it just can't hurt. Maybe towards the end of the season, once it's mathematically secured, that's when he starts to get more minutes. But when you see guys like, you know, Daniel Podence posting, you know, 0.17 non-penalty expected goals this season. Like, you can't tell me Corbiano can't do better or worse. Um, like, at the very least, he'd offer maybe around the same sort of production. Who knows? Thoughts on Liam Miller, Thomas? Um, obviously, he's now approaching around 2,000 minutes at Charlton since he moved there on loan from Liverpool. He had a pretty decent stint with Canada in March. Um, your thoughts overall on his form right now? Yeah, Liam, uh, I've interviewed him before. I actually got a chance to interview him before his loan um, was announced to, to Charlton. Look, I mean, he has the Scottish Premiership experience. Um, he's played for Liverpool in the FA Cup, I believe, uh, against a League One side. And he's also on a Liverpool, uh, not long-term contract, but multi-year contract. Speaking to my colleague, Matthias Gress, who, who covers Charlton and, and, and watches Charlton, week in, week out. Um, what he was telling me uh, is, and I'll take his word for it, is that Liam Miller has shown flares uh, throughout the season, um, but he hasn't been the best player at Charlton. Yes, um, yeah. Now I have told him that I do believe that uh, Miller does deserve to be in the championship next year because not only did he have massive interest from several clubs, um, some of them being um, Wigan, uh, Hull City, uh, and such. But at the end of the day, I mean, the connections that Liverpool has, and if Liam Miller has shown enough, I think he's shown enough to be given a chance to play 
in a championship. But the the difference between championship and League One, I think it's massive considered uh, compared to the championship to the Premier League. You know, if you look on transfer market, the championship is valued at one billion euros. And then League One is valued at 100 and, 120, 130. Um, but again, I wouldn't count too much on that because you've seen players for like, I don't know, the last 100 years move up move up and down. Um, but it's also just a case of, I, I do think it would be a, a higher, higher step in quality if, if his next step uh, is indeed the, the championship. Oh, of course. And agreed with what Matias said. I mean, he's, anytime you watch him, you can see the kind of quality he has. He just doesn't put it together for 90 minutes. Like he doesn't take over a game for 90 minutes, which is what is, is kind of maddening about him. Because when you look at just the pure numbers that he registers, like he's in the top 12, 15 in most uh, metrics. Like if you look, look at expected assists, he's registering uh, 0.18 expected assists per 90. That has him tied for 11th in League One out of all attacking midfielders and forwards uh, with at least a thousand minutes. And then key passes, he's 12th with 0.73 key passes per 90 minutes. And then um, 3.94 passes into the box that ranks 18th in league one. So like they're solid, but not outstanding numbers really. And I find that he tends to perform best. And I've written about this a couple times now. Uh, he performs his best when he's allowed to drift inside and dictate games. Now, it's very difficult to do that in a 4-4-2, and at Charlton, he tends to hug the touchline quite a bit more, and he's involved defensively, which also uses up a lot of energy. But that really is the reason why you're not seeing him take over games that much. Uh, now, at some point, especially when you have this long of a run, you have to start showing consistency across the 90 minutes, not just in spurts. But look, I, I do agree with you. I, I remember just before the loan happened, I think he should, at the very least, be at like a lower mid-table or lower-end championship club. I think that's his level right now. Maybe if he got match experience at that level, maybe you start to see him kind of rise to the occasion and and really put it all together. We also have El Canaco, who asks, Jesse Fleming, is she going to move to another club to get minutes, Peter? I would say at this point it would be beneficial. Um, look, Chelsea's loaded. They are the best team in the WSL by far. She's clearly very talented. We've seen that. Um, and look, it's just one of those cases of if you're not in the coach's plans, you got to leave and find minutes, especially with the Olympics coming up. Now, I, I don't think it'll matter really in terms of her stock, but maybe if she does well at the Olympics, she can get that move away and then start playing regularly because it, it has to help her for sure. Yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, Jesse Fleming is one of those players that even if her club situation isn't going well, like she's not getting minutes, um, she delivers for a national team uh, and when counted upon. Uh, and nonetheless, even if she isn't valued at Chelsea prior to next season, um, then she should start looking for a new club. Um, she should have an honest conversation with the manager there and, and see if uh, she is considered or not. Dipping back into the mailbag, at WPG Garito asked, do we know if Daniel Jebison was slash is actually interested in the Canadian program, especially now that he is being courted by the three Lions, or are we falling into a Marcelo Flores category now? Uh, and to those who don't know, Daniel Jebison, um, under 18 slash 21, 23 player for Sheffield United, 
He is a number nine. Uh, Thomas, what do you think the situation is right now? Yeah, so this player, he played for a former League One Ontario club, AMB Football, which no longer uh, has a League One team. Um, look, what I do know is that he came to his family at a young age um, as a kid and recently relocated to England um, as of 2017 with his family. As far as his interest to play for Canada, I mean, I'm sure he feels Canadian, uh, spending the majority of his life here. And considering his chances to uh, to play for England uh, being so slim, um, he is in the Premier League U23, uh, as you mentioned, with Sheffield. And um, same league that Liam Miller took part in uh, and currently Theo Corbiano. Um, anytime you are an England international at any level um, that comes with certain prestige, um, I would put him in the same group of players as, as Marcelo Flores, although he, he definitely has more to go. It would be ideal for the CSA to, to invite him to a youth camp, see him up close, and then if he impresses a uh, senior team. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And he's still obviously very, very raw. Like you can see, he's a tall, lanky player. He has moments where he reads the game very well, but then there are times where like he doesn't really see the situation yet, and then that kind of costs him. But again, still very young, very raw. Like that's going to come with time, you imagine, especially if he can maybe get matches at, an, at another high level. Um, so some quick rapid fire here, just from us, as we uh, thank the listeners for submitting their submissions. Uh, on to other MLS-based players who are playing, quote-unquote, abroad. Second game for Tyler Pasher and another assist for him. Tejon Buchanan playing only nine minutes, dropped from the 11. However, from the New England Revolution, and then Dane St. Clair uh, starting again for Rail Salt Lake. Uh, Thomas, any quick thoughts about any of these players? Look, uh, second game, second assist for Tyler Pasher. Is he an option for Canada, or is that too early to say? I think it is too early to say. Now, if he has an assist every single game, then I think it's almost a question of what do you need to do to get in, right? Uh, into the conversation. I'm happy to see Dane Sinclair uh, play again. I mean, he is the clear number one at Minnesota. I was a bit worried after the 4 nothing defeat. Um, obviously, he saved that that penalty kick um, against Seattle, one of the strongest MLS sides, but I was worried that that 4 nothing loss would uh, impact his chances um, as far as getting the confidence from the coaching staff and playing again. Um, Tayshia Buchanan, just really quickly, um, nine minutes, that's unfortunate. I mean, considering this is a big season for him, you know, he's reportedly being scouted heavily by European clubs. So this is a massive season for him. And so what the nine minutes tells me, at least, I don't know about you, it tells me that, A, I guess he, he didn't really perform to his coach's standard. And this was just a way of maybe saying saying uh, to Tejan, um, you know, to really keep training hard and, and in training, uh, and maybe later we'll we'll give you some more minutes. To close out, uh, Scott Kennedy, he was back in action for Jan Regensburg after a head injury, uh, missed the big week match, but returned to play the full 90 against Hamburg, uh, who are in third and fighting for promotion. And again, just a teaser, we are hoping to speak to him and uh, have him on the show, hopefully by the next episode. So stay tuned for that. Um, Closing out the show, Thomas, with uh, the draw for the Olympics involving the Canadian women's national team. Uh, drawn into a group with uh, the host, Japan, Great Britain, who, of course, they just played England and Wales, and uh, your native Chile. Um, what do you make of the group? 
it's a group of death, right? Uh, Japan are 11th in the world. Canada's eighth. Um, England are sixth. So it's uh, it's a very very competitive group, and obviously Chile are, are the newcomers, are the underdogs. Um, so what I think is is very cruel. What I don't really don't understand is why the Olympics does have this 18 players rule. Um, I don't I don't quite understand it. Um, I think it's very very thin amount. Um, you you had, you would at least hope that it would be at minimum 22. Uh, at least 20, but 18 players kind of gives you a, and you put you in a tough situation, you know, two goalkeepers, that's three games in six days. I think match fitness will be, will be very important. The Olympics rule, and it's the same for the men too. Having 18 players on a roster is just ridiculous. Like, especially when you're playing every couple of days, they're going to get worn out. And that's why I feel like, Look, it's going to hinge on on beating Chile and then managing the goal difference in the other games because the two best third-place teams do advance. Um, So Canada just has to hope that they be one of those teams at the very least, obviously. But look, this is also a great opportunity for this young side, right? You're facing two legitimate powerhouses in the women's game, in Japan and Great Britain. If they don't get out of the group, then at least you have a bit of a litmus test to see how far along some of these players are and how far along they are in the... Uh, Bev Priestman cycle right now. Typically speaking, Canada has gotten some pretty difficult groups in the past. They've gotten out of it. I'm not too too worried myself. I don't know if, if you are or not. Uh, no, I'm not because um, they have a couple players that have already played in the Olympics uh, and did quite well. I mean, they, they finished with a, a bronze medal around their neck, right? Yeah. Um, and they have so, like you mentioned there, they have so much young talent um, that's even not only pushing the 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 older players because pushing would be you know challenging um but overcome some older players we were talking with Sandra Pusina and the questions were being asked is Sophie Schmidt still a starter is Dean is uh Christian Sinclair still a starter I mean these are legitimate questions and, and the younger younger core players uh the younger crop of players excuse me um, are really proving that, and and they're showing well. Um, it's going to be hard for for Bev Priestman uh, to pick eighteen players, considering how competitive this game. But uh, hey, I mean, we've seen in the past back to back bronze medals, and uh, I think this draw is 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 favorable favorable enough. I mean, it's I expect Canada to get to get through, and and then not only once you get to the knockout stage, but then at least be. Uh, in the semifinals picture. Completely agreed. That is going to do it for us this week. Uh, Jam-packed show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will speak to you same time, same place on the Northern Football Podcast. <laughs>